This episode of the Terminal Value Podcast is sponsored by me. I'm looking to help a thousand people build an affiliate marketing business that can enable them to pursue their passions and make a real difference in the world. The program my mentor and I created is based on tested content that has generated multiple seven-figure producers. It doesn't involve any paid advertising, doesn't require any selling, and 90% of the work is done for you. But wait, there's more. The way we do it is different from other people out there. Instead of recruiting you to build my list in exchange for a commission, I'm going to help you learn how to build your own list while growing your affiliate business so you have an asset that can create value for you every day, week, month, and year of your life. If this sounds interesting, please visit www.dougbusiness.com to access the free training we created that explains how it all works. Hey, welcome to Terminal Value. So everything that I do here is based on one big question, and that is, how do growth-oriented people overcome the psychotic vortex of society to create a life of value and need? That is the question, and I am here to bring you the answer. My name is Doug Utberg, and this is Terminal Value. I publish new content every week, so make sure to hit the subscribe button and turn on notifications, and then share your thoughts on each episode through social media and make sure to tag me so that I will know what to create for you. We have Bronson Hill with us today and we are going to be talking about why Bronson loves boring investments. And I'm just going to do a little bit of a spoiler alert. Bronson's competency area is in real estate, which is actually one of the best asset classes as far as long-term wealth, wealth accumulation, tax efficiency. But the problem that it suffers from is that it's not very good for selling information products because real estate, when you do it right, is really pretty simple. So anyway, Bronson, please introduce yourself and uh, let's unpack the idea a little bit. Sure. Yeah. So I guess I'm, I'm just a boring individual talking about boring investments. So I, I guess I can embrace that. But um, no, it's said that you know good investing can be watched like watching paint dry or watching grass grow. So it's not really a place in general for most investments we should have a lot of excitement in. But my background, I was a well-paid medical sales professional for mm-hmm. years. I would work and go into surgery and help doctors with their surgery, their heart surgery. And I was making really good money. I was making over $200,000 a year but I didn't have control over my time and I wanted to have control over my time. A lot of people talk about financial freedom. What they really want is time freedom, right? Because it's it's not just money. It's what will money give, give you freedom over your time. And so- And can I stop you just, yeah, for just a second? I would actually argue that I think money is a measuring stick, but it really comes back to time because like, for example, okay, let's say that I earn $50 an hour just to make the math simple. If I want to buy something that's $200, that represents four hours, you know? And so what ends up happening is that as the amount you earn per hour goes up, then the time cost of whatever you'd want to buy goes down. However, when you get past middle age, all of a sudden you get to the point where you become very cognizant that there is a hard limit to how much time you have. And that there's no amount of money that can make that go up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, it really is. It's uh, we're, we're limited. Even doctors, and, and this is kind of some experience when I was working. I had physicians that made literally millions of dollars a year, over two million dollars mm-hmm. a year, but they were working sixty or eighty hours a week. 
and they couldn't stop working. Like they had to work to make the money. And I just thought, man, they just really don't have freedom, right? We're, we're, we're doing a time for money trade. Mm-hmm. And so I did what a lot of people do is they said, oh, I'm going to get into real estate. I started buying single family houses, had uh, four or five single family houses, realized it was a lot of work. I wasn't really getting a lot of cash flow from it. It looked great on paper, but then would actually all their expenses would come up. I didn't make a lot of money doing it. And then I had a uh, chance encounter with a relative I hadn't seen in years who was a multifamily investor for many mm-hmm. years and said, why don't you raise money? Why don't you go do multifamily? And I said, can you do that? Is that, is that something you can do? Whatever. So it took me on a course to learn. Mm-hmm. I started to meet up in LA, found an investor. We bought, uh, invested in a kind of a part of a larger deal. 200 units in uh, Texas. And then, uh, you know, now it's it's been four years, about a year and a half ago, I left my great corporate job and we've raised about $30 million to help people buy boring cash flow investments that help save on taxes. So that's what we do. <laughs> well, that's excellent. Well, I was going to say on single families, your cash flow and single t- families don't tend to be amazing, but usually they're pretty good when you go to sell them because the since single families tend to inflate based on uh, market demand as opposed to cash flow, you can sometimes hit some home runs with those single families. Generally speaking, if you're talking multifamilies, they go based on a multiple of cash flow. So unless your market capitalization rate changes, you're going to have to raise the rent and or make cash flow driving improvements in order to drive up the value. Yeah, you're right. I mean, people, you can do very well when you sell single family deals. The challenge I find that if you want to replace, there's different forms of financial freedom, I say. One is if you replace your income. So I was making 200000 a year. That was hard to be able to replace that. But I found if I could replace more like $60,000 a year, which was my living expenses, yep. then that would be enough. And through cash flow, that's why I think cash flow is so powerful because it actually enables you, if you wanted to, you figure out how much your living expenses are. And if you could cover, whether it's four or five, 10K a month, whatever that number is, if you can cover yep. that with passive residual income, you're free. You can choose to work how you want to work, when you want to work. So I would say I always prefer cash flow over appreciation investments because of just the, the freedom it gives you to live the life you want to live. Yeah, precisely. And yeah, I was just just kind of throwing you a softball there. Well, and let's jump into tax benefits a little bit. I mean, because uh, you know, people who are familiar with real estate will obviously know what depreciation is, but uh, just kind of give us a quick walkthrough about how depreciation works and why it makes such a difference when you're talking about property investing. Yeah. So basically depreciation is really interesting because when you buy a house, let's say it's a house you live in, the government says, we're going to let you write off the total cost of this house over 27 and a half years. So that means basically you have cost of this house, let's say it's half a million dollars. You're going to basically get a certain percentage of that each year equally over 27 and a half years. With multifamily investing, there's something called accelerated and bonus depreciation, which allows you to bring that forward to year one. So it basically allows you to take like, for example, one deal we have is a hundred K investment will produce about a 90 K year one passive loss. So what does that mean? Does that mean you lost money? It doesn't mean you lost any money. It just shows on paper, you have all this depreciation from the investment and you can use that in some scenarios against your taxes. Now, some mm-hmm. it's limited as far as your ordinary income, unless you're a real estate professional. And again, I'm not giving anybody specific t- tax advice, but you can basically use it against if you had other investment gains that are passive, such as a rental house, such as other things that you sold. So the example you gave, if you sold a rental house, you made all this money and you sold it, you had $200,000 in gains. Well, are you going to be paying you'll be paying taxes on those $200,000 in gains, maybe pay 40 or 50,000 or whatever that 30,000 whatever that amount is, but if you can find enough passive losses, mm-hmm. you can reduce those taxable gains basically to zero 
for that, you at least defer them for up to five years or longer. So there's these strategies we use to try to continue to defer, reduce taxes, to pay no taxes. And there are different kind of ways to do it that people call them loopholes. I call them incentives the government provides to provide housing and provide other resources. Well, it's for, funny because uh, people call them loopholes like they're a secret and they're yeah. probably the worst kept secret <laughs> in the entire world of finance. It's not like it's something that it's, well, and uh, again, a lot of my friends, when they'd get terrified that there was government was going to pass some law that made it impossible to do whatever. What I would always say is like, well, you have to understand that the people who are passing these laws still want to be able to make their own investments and do stuff. So there's going to be a way to at least make it not that bad. You just have to figure out what that is. Yeah, no, it's people that are in, you know, right and left politically in Congress and in the Senate, they, they find ways to make this work. And so the government has incentive plans to help provide, you know, workforce housing, such as multifamily apartments, as mm-hmm. well as in other spaces, the energy space. If you're in the oil and gas space, there's all kinds yeah. of incentives there that you know people can use or even solar that you can use to basically help reduce even sometimes ordinary income, which is really amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's dive into the real heart of our conversation, which is the boringness of real estate and why you love it so much. <laughs> I sound like a pretty boring guy here. I always yeah. Do boring things. <laughs> Yeah, yeah so go, no, go out I, party with some librarians. Yeah, exactly. We're gonna we're gonna party in silence. Uh, we invited an economist and you know, <laughs> <we've> got <laughs> an insurance salesman. <laughs> we have a very stimulating conversation. Yeah, no, I think uh, you know in general, I describe we're going for base hits, right? We're going for things that we feel are very predictable. And I can show you, you know, uh, actually have a, a resource on my website, the at bronsonequity.com, just shows you this report about inflation, but it talks about the kind of stability of multifamily investing that rents and inflation go hand in hand. So that means from 1960, I could put a chart up and showing basically it's just, it's a trend line, almost exactly rents are slightly behind, but it generally just keeps pace. Yeah. Generally speaking, rent's going to keep pace with inflation. And for the most part, you know, outside of bubble anomalies, value will keep pace with pace with inflation too. You know, again, you get some plus and minus uh, aberrations, but you know, usually what'll happen is right. Your price and your rents will roughly track inflation. But the magic is that if you have that fixed rate debt, then the amount that you owe ends up staying, well, it ends up being amortized down if you have a self-liquidating loan. Correct. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's interesting in LA where I live, it's, um, I know you're on the West Coast also, we've seen house prices triple in the last 10 years. So it, it has, it sometimes does move very non-linearly and things will crash, they'll come up, they'll go up and down. And it's not always, things don't always make sense as a rental, right? So the house that I stay in here. I actually rent. So we have 200 million in multifamily assets. I rent this house because it would cost 1.2 million. The payment would be 10 grand a month after I put a down payment down. So I have to put 10% or whatever down 120K and I'd lose out on whatever return I could get on that. And I only pay about 3,500 a month to rent here. So it doesn't make sense in that particular. And so so it depends where you're buying, how you're buying. So multifamily is unique because a house is based, the value is based on what the property across the street or across town sold for. Versus multifamily is all based on the income, right? Yeah. So if I can, like, so we're buying stuff in Jacksonville, Florida, that's value add. So, you know, rents a thousand bucks. We can, you know, this is stuff built in the seventies. We put a $6,000 light renovation, maybe some work in the kitchen, the bathrooms, the floors, the walls, whatever. And basically we're able to see rents go to fi- above $1,500. Yeah, so so value add fi- is such a, mu- is a much nicer way to say fixer upper. Yeah, it is. It's, it's basically, yeah, yeah, whenever it's basically I hear real estate people say, flip, yeah, I've got yeah. a value add. I'm like, okay, yeah. so what you're saying is <laughs> it's kind of a dump and <laughs> you need to make it look nice. Well, I would say I wouldn't choose to live there, but there's a lot of people that, you know, it's amazing if you buy in the right market right now, we're sure there's several reports I could share that came out 
in the last year or two that show that we're short between three and eight million apartment units or housing units in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So, you know, where is this going to come from? So in areas like Jacksonville, Florida, where things are 96, 97 percent occupied, there's nowhere to go. And there's a thousand new people showing up in town every single week. So if that's the case, like where are all these people going to go? Right. So it just drives. So we've seen just in the market continually, even lately, rents are still rising. And that's just what's happening in the market beyond what we can do to kind of help force appreciation. Mm -hmm. right? We know rents are getting 1500 a month. Even if we have recession and we only able to get $1,400, we are still doing great because we're able to increase the rents from where they are currently. So it gives a lot more safety in it, but it's just, you're going in and it's, it's like you said, doing a fixer and adding value and, and, you know, it's an unsexy investment, but we're hoping to usually double the money in, in about five years. That's kind of the projected goals. And sometimes it goes much faster, sometimes it takes longer, but generally that's what we're going for. Well, let's see. I'm just thinking, cause yeah, if you double in five years, that's about what a 15% CAGR, mm -hmm. something like that right around. Yeah. I mean, that's decent, you know, and the thing that's really good about something like real estate is that you're generally speaking, your level of volatility will be considerably less than something like equities or crypto or whatever. And because like, for example, we were talking about your value chart, how sometimes your value chart will go way up and then it'll crash. And so, yeah, when I talk about track inflation, I'm meaning, you know, that long-term regression line, because usually what'll happen is values will, will shoot up and then they'll top and then they'll start going down while inflation's going up but it'll usually regress toward that inflation line. Yeah, absolutely. You know, real estate is one of those things that, that from 100 years ago or something, Andrew Carnegie was one of the wealthiest men, wealthiest men in the world. He basically said, you know, 90% of millionaires became so through real estate. And it's just, it's this strategy of buying something that you're buying an asset that will be worth more later. You brought it up, you know, you're borrowing at a fixed rate or a lower rate than what inflation actually is. Even at, I believe, even at seven, 8%, I yeah. think inflation is actually more like 15 to 18% when you look at a site like Shadow Stats, which looks at the CPI. Why is it that 80. every real estate person I know always talks about Shadow Stats? <laughs> I guess like, I'm just literally very, I guess every I'm just, person I oh, know. You know, why, you know why it is? Here's, here's why it is. Here's why it is. Because <laughs> traditional media and traditional finance are so bought into the system and it's almost like the matrix. Like once you see beyond Wall Street, you're like, they're out to get you. And I was an investment advisor for a few years. Like I felt like I saw behind the curtain in the Wizard of Oz. And once you see it, you can't like unsee it. You're like, dude, this is just out to, you know, the fact that Wall Street gets paid even when people are losing half their money or there's all these hidden fees. Like Tony Robbins had this book that came out and said the average mutual fund, the fees are 1.2%, but legally they don't have to disclose a bunch of fees. And so it actually ends up being more like 3.2%. But you don't know that because it's not actually disclosed. And then if you have a, a financial advisor, they usually take one to 2% on top yeah, of that. So that's, that's 4.2 to 5.2%. And the average returns are only six to 8% per year when you count the up and, and the down year. So it, to me, that's what's really challenging. So I, I become very cynical and skeptical of these big institutional financial firms and groups. And so when I look at like even things like governmental data and the CPI and other mm -hmm. things, it's like, these are very fudge numbers. I think it's very important because if you believe it's only 8%, then you're going to think if you're getting an I bond and you're getting 9%, then you're doing really well versus if inflation is actually 15%, then you're actually in a real rates, you're losing money by getting a nine or 10 or 12% return, mm -hmm. which a lot of people don't think about. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, and that phenomenon you're discussing, A, I completely agree. I think it's real. It's a part of what I've come to refer to as the psychopathic vortex. And basically it's between large government entities, large corporations, and large media outlets. There's basically this self-feeding cycle of what economists call rent seeking, which is basically where you use either monopolistic pricing power or regulatory power, or just the fact that you have the ability to limit access to information to create outsized advantages for you that other people don't have access to. 
Yeah, it really is. I mean, there's so much that's come out. There's a movie and a book by Michael Lewis called, I think it's called Flash Boys. And it showed, this was like 10 years ago or yeah, something. Yeah, Flash or 15 Crash. Years. When I was, it was actually called Flash Boys. And it basically talked, it wasn't about the Flash Crash. It was about basically Wall Street was paying when high-speed like fiber was first available. Uh-huh. They were paying like billions. It was like $50 billion to, to instruct something from New York to Chicago to basically be able to front run your and my trades and anybody's trades, so they could take, they could know that the order came in yes, you before could it actually the hit, order. Yep. and they could go in and, and basically buy and sell it before you got there, or they could buy it, and then it would basically take a little fee. And they were making billions and billions of dollars on this every single year. So there's all kinds of practices like that where it, it kind of feels unfair. So that's why I'm so passionate about mainstream investments, things that are real assets, things that are less financialized. And we talked a little bit about crypto and other things that you know just basically are built up as kind of scams in some ways and where it's like dude how we were telling people these things are worth stuff when what do you really have and what is a paper asset okay i guess you own a piece of this business but what do you own and if it's so volatile is that really an investment yeah precisely i mean and because i always have a really conflicted feeling about say like for example stock market equities because on the one hand yes you are buying an ownership stake in a ongoing business enterprise that is legitimate on the other hand, the way that they're traded is that you know it's basically an exchange of baseball cards. And you know, so this is actually one of the reasons why just speaking for myself, kind of a part of the evolution in my thinking has really gone toward things like business and real estate, because those are the two ways that pretty much everybody who has like 99% of people who have developed a level of wealth beyond pretty comfortable. You know, like for example, if you work at a company, put your money in your 401k, do that for 40 years, you'll come out pretty comfortable. You're off probably somewhere between like one and 5 million bucks. But if you're talking 10, 20, 30, 50, that is always because somebody built a business, maybe sold it, or maybe just refinanced it and or real estate. Those are usually the two things. A lot of the crypto people, you know, went up and then just crashed right back down. Yeah, exactly. And I think you're right is that, and I think those two things play into each other, what you mentioned business and real estate is that I work with a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of people make a lot of money and they're like, okay, I made a lot of money. What do I do with this? And a great place to park it is into real assets such as real estate. And then it allows you to get that, you know, I was sending my show, my podcast is the mailbox money show, right? Generate just passive cash flow that you didn't have to work for, right? So you worked in your business, you worked in your job, whatever. And how do you develop it to where, you know, you get it over time? So that's the whole thing is when you have assets, your assets actually work for you rather than you having to work for money. And so that's a paradigm shift for a lot of people. It's very it's very simple, but it's very profound. What you, what you just did, I think, was put a piece of insight that was always missing from the Robert Kiyosaki stuff that I read. Because of course, like, like everybody else, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I always considered Rich Dad, Poor Dad to be about two-thirds, <laughs> about two-thirds <laughs> complete. And because like, for example, one of the things it says in there is money works hard for them. They don't work hard for money. And I'm like, okay, that sounds great. Where are you going to get the money in the first place? I don't have a trust fund. Where are you going to get the money in the first place? In order for money to work for hard for you, you need to have it in the first place. So you need to figure out how you can earn, save, or accumulate it you know, without it just magically falling from the sky. And I think that's one of the places where a lot of the thought leaders just kind of just kind of explain it away. Yeah. Yeah. And they kind of trail off. I think that's a really good point. It does take money to make money. The cool thing about it is it doesn't have to be your money. It can be other people's money. And this is something that I really had a hard time. A lot of times we come up against things. It's like, it just feels really foreign. It's like, wow, oh, can you even do like even my cousin or relative uh-huh. shared? It's like, how, how do you, like, I can raise money. That's so weird. And so now you know, we raise 50,000, a hundred thousand, 200,000 from different investors. And we pull it together to buy something. And we've raised over $13 million this year, but it started with just one guy putting a hundred thousand into a deal or being a partner on something mm-hmm. that we're doing. 
And so that's you know something not everybody is going to do, but I think it's something that I've, I we have somebody in a group that I coach with who's a school teacher who's starting to do this. And you know she realized of her friends and family, she got this big list of people that she knows, and if she just lets people know what she's doing, she's interested in, she can create some value there. So I think even talking to a lot of business people, there's opportunity to in real estate not only to invest but also maybe to bring friends and family. And then I've had people shift from their regular business to like say, hey, I'm just going to sell this or stop doing this, and I'm just going to kind of focus on the syndication side, which is just the fancy way of saying raising money for real estate. Yeah. Well, and the syndication side, you know, as again, assuming you're working with ethical operators, which can be a big assumption in some time, but the syndication side, you know, can be pretty nice because it can be a way to capture a good amount of the returns and upside from your real estate, you know, while being able to do it in a somewhat passive manner, because, you know, I don't know what kind of fees you charge, but most syndications generally don't charge exorbitant fees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We're typically... It's like a one to 2% a closing for an acquisition fee. And then we, we don't even really take, there may be a, a 1% or 1.5% fee as you go, but there's a split at the end. So whatever we quote, as far as returns, all of syndicators quote returns, that's net of any fees, but it's not, it's all disclosed. So it's like, hey, if we make money, we all want to make a lot of money, right? So it actually, yeah. and that's a really unique feature that Wall Street, unless you're in a hedge fund or super high net worth, you don't have performance-based fees. Meaning if I manage $100 million of people's money, and it goes down, it goes up, it doesn't really matter. Actually, it, it, there was a study that came out to show that over 50% of people that manage large Wall Street funds have $0 invested in the fund of people's money they're managing, which is crazy, right? There's no money invested. Right. Yeah, but there's no skin I, in the game at all. So when I do these deals with investors, not only do I put my own money and I put tens of thousands of dollars in or more if I can, I also, there's a split based on the performance. So it's like mm-hmm. if the deal, however the deal goes with the cash flow, it's usually 80% to the passive investors and 20% to our team or 70, 30. There's some split there based on the profits and that's how we all get paid. So that's what we really want is to create win-win. And I think that's one of the challenges with Wall Street is they've created a way of fee structure where they win even when you lose. And that's what's really, that's what I have a hard time with. Well, and I think this is kind of getting into the rent-seeking vortex that I was previously mentioning, which is that I think there really needs to be a realignment of incentives. And also, you know, getting into another one of my many tangents is the idea of money and value, right? You know, because what a lot of people do is they go after money and they're not that concerned about value. But anytime that you are generating money without creating value, that is, well, A, unethical, and B, will eventually implode. And so my thesis is that I think you should really worry about value more than money because the money will find value eventually. It may take a lot longer than you're comfortable with, but money will find value eventually. What you're doing is legitimately valuable. Money will find it. And I think that a part of this, all this crypto nonsense we've been seeing is that, you know, you have a bunch of people who are trying to chase after money with absolutely no clue what, if any real value is present. Yeah, exactly. And that's, and you were talking a little earlier, you know, about all the energy and the the energy costs that go into to mining all this yeah. crypto stuff. And, and I think, you know, it really is important. I think when we look at the world, there's people that create value for others and there's people that are really kind of draining things. And so, you know, I have to ask myself, am I somebody who's adding value to the people around me relationally in business, in my community? All of those things are important because I mean, I think all a lot of us would say, yeah, I really want to be almost all of us to say, I want to be somebody who adds value yep. where I go. And that's why we obviously people listen to a podcast like this is they're saying like, how do I get better? How do I grow? And so, and that's really how people get paid really well. You look at people that have got, you know, become billionaires is because they've created so much value around whatever the concept of the idea is. And people say, oh, they're greedy or whatever. So no, they've actually created, they've actually given so much value. The market has found this is such a great deal to pay this person because they're helping solve a problem I couldn't solve otherwise. So that's kind of how I look at that. It's just, you know, being a person of value. 
And also, right, I'm thinking for myself, I have a big line of differentiation between like, say, founder, millionaire, billionaire, and a career path, millionaire, billionaire. So like, for example, you have, you know, some of these Fortune 500 CEOs, I'm sure many of them have billion plus dollar net worths, but they literally had no risk the entire time. Mm-hmm. They had a free option, no yeah. risk, because yeah. whether they produce value or not, they still got paid. If they got fired, okay, well, they didn't have to give it back. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they, they had no risk. They could just yeah. go do it again somewhere else. You know, whereas when you have your own money, your own time, your own business on the line, that's completely different. You know, and I think one of the I think big deficiencies in the way that we talk about achievement wealth, et cetera, is that you know, people who generate a lot of wealth through rent seeking and people who generate a lot of wealth through value creation are viewed as the same and they're not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. It is it's interesting how the world values certain things more than others. And yeah, it's not always, I guess, from a value perspective, there's things you can do that you can compromise your own values and make a lot of money. But yeah. if you're not really adding value, and I think that's what you're bringing up is there's, there can be a disconnect between people that are, you know, like taking no risk and people that are actually putting themselves out there. And I know you work with a lot of entrepreneurs and I'm an yeah. entrepreneur and it's just, it is, it's a risk where you're like, you know, you have those, those, Night sometimes you know you're an entrepreneur, you look up at the ceiling at 3 a.m. and you're figuring out how you're gonna make this work in your business. And anybody who's an entrepreneur that I know has had those moments, right? That we're we're kind of geared a little bit differently than other people, which is fine. But it's just, you know, you should share on the upside if you're sharing in the risks like those. Precisely. All right. Well, so uh, Bronson, this has been a great conversation, but I want to make sure that I am being mindful of everyone's time. So give us one or two last thoughts and then let us know where we can go to find more. I'll shout out your website. Absolutely. Thanks. Yeah. So I think right now, uh, really, you know, having a plan for what to do when inflation is high, a lot of times the confused mind will say to wait. And, you know, if inflation is in fact 15 to 18%, if you wait two years, you could be losing 30 to 40% of your purchasing power. Not that your mm-hmm. physical money, you know, it decreases, but that what it buys is less. And so I wrote this, uh, this guy, like I mentioned, how to use inflation to your advantage. It's on my website, bronsonequity.com free download there. I'd love to connect with anybody. If anyone's interested in hearing about our deals, we're doing deals. I always love connecting with people about real estate. I'm also on social media as well, but this has been great, Doug. I appreciate you having me today. Outstanding. Outstanding. Yeah. And I'm just going to go on one little tangent because in a lot of cases, this seems counterintuitive, but if you're in an inflationary environment, the best hedge you can have is actually having fixed rate debt on your assets. Um, you know, So for example, the house that I'm in has a mortgage at like three and a quarter percent interest, which is basically nothing. And so eventually what ends up happening is as rents inflate, I start getting to the point where I'm carrying a mortgage that's getting around what other people are paying for rent for a much smaller and less substantial residence. And so, you know, there's a little bit of float you have to do in the midterm, but just I think in a and just a defensive strategy, that fixed rate mortgage is a tremendous defensive strategy because it locks in your primary cost of living. And so then what it does is it reduces the amount of your income that's subject to that 15% per year degradation in purchasing power. Absolutely. No, it's really when you can borrow long-term at a lower fixed rate and invest short-term at a higher rate, it's a great arbitrage way to do really well over time. So, you know, it's not that we can advise anybody to go into debt for stuff, yeah. but the stuff that I've used, I actually found a, a place that gave me a personal line of credit. This is why I still had a job a couple of years, a year and a half ago, I uh, had a job and I said, you know, I was able to get a hundred thousand dollar personal line of credit. So it wasn't, it's like a HELOC, but there was no asset behind it. They loaned it to me at 2.75% fixed for 10 years, interest only for the first two years. So 
it was awesome because I could take that money and I knew I could go invest it and get 15% per year or get something higher or go be able to use that. Yeah. So it's getting harder. Obviously finding 2.75% fixed anything right now is hard, but there was a time where it was available. But even now, even getting six, 7%, if you knew you had a higher, some higher return you could get and you felt sure of it, that's something to consider. Back in the day, right? The fix and flippers, you know, they'd go get 12% hard money loans, but they yeah. had their stuff dialed in. To where even with the money costs, they were still, you know, burning pretty good profits on their flips. It's just making sure that you don't hit a market collapse. Yeah, for like sure. 2008 so killed a lot of those guys, but yeah, yeah, it did. And people are still getting, you know, 12%, 15% hard money loans now. So I'm seeing it, you know, people are doing that. Yeah. All right. Well, okay. So uh, shut out your website one more time for us. Yeah. Uh, BronsonEquity.com. So you can, if somebody's watching behind me, I've got Bronson Equity back here. If you're listening, it's just B-R-O-N-S-O-N equity.com. Okay, bronsonequity.com. All right. Bronson, really appreciate it. Thanks so much. This is great. All right. Thank you for listening to the Terminal Value Podcast. To keep the conversation going, please join the Terminal Value community on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash groups slash Terminal Value Community and click join. Also, if you like this episode, please leave a review on iTunes or Spotify and make sure to subscribe. When you share it on your favorite social channel, be sure to tag me and tell me what you did or didn't like about the episode so I'll know what to create for you. I'm looking forward to hearing from you and I'll see you again on the next episode.